Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Matthew is the Chief Operating Officer of Flix Entertainment and Brewhouse. Matt came to Flix from Rex, or sorry, Real Mex Restaurants, where he was the Director of Franchise Operations for Chevy's 24-store franchise operation, as well as a region of five company-owned stores, including its Times Square flagship location. His franchise and company stores represented a combined $78 million of system-wide sales. Prior, he was Regional Director of Operations for Chevy's with Uh, city responsibility for San Francisco, Sacramento, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. From 2000 to 2004, Matthew was a vice president of operation for Zhao Noodle Bar, a unique pan-Asian restaurant concept that grew to 10 locations in four markets, plus two licensed outlets on the West Coast. In 2004, he became the president and CEO of Zhao, where he remained until 2010. Matthew is a food service lifer, and he is a 1990 graduate from Cornell University of Hospitality, with concentrations in food and beverage management. Matthew, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I didn't notice when I was prepping that you were a Cornell grad, and I would have been partying at Cornell when you were there. Really? Uh, Yeah. I went to school in Vancouver, Canada, or sorry, in uh, Ottawa, Ontario. And Ottawa was about four hours north of Cornell. Sure. Um, and there was a bar. What's the bar at Cornell that's like underground, like a bunker or something? Like a, a tiny a little, what's that? A bunker? A little pub. Yeah, it was like a stone wall, tiny, small underground bar at Cornell on the on campus or right. Does that ring a bell? It does not, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, like I, spent, a- I spent a long time there. And, and part of my story is, is that I owned a bar in College Town uh, adjacent to the campus. Well, I think, so this, I'm pretty sure it was on campus. I don't know if that would make sense. And I can kind of picture kind of down the hill from where all the fraternities would have be is where it was. But it was like a... Right. So I think you're thinking of the chapter house. Could be. That might which be was a pub uh, down the hill right, right in the row of fraternities and uh, it uh, sadly got lost to fire years ago. And would it have felt like it was kind of underground? Like yeah, it was kind, down- of, kind, of, kind of had the dungeon feel. Yeah, that, that would yeah. have been the place. Yeah, I, so I was a part of a group called Acacia Fraternity and we opened up the fraternity in Ottawa. We were the first fraternity ever in the city. And so we used to come down to party at Cornell Oh God. And I remember calling some sorority house trying to track this girl down and I didn't even have the right name for her, but they still connected me with the girl. But <laughs> I, we had to do things a little differently back then in order to find people, right? Yeah, yeah right. There was no crazy. Facebook. But right. I, I loved your campus. What a beautiful, beautiful campus to go to. Yeah, it was a uh, really wonderful uh, time of my life. And uh, Cornell uh, is a, a big part of kind of what shaped me. Um, mm-hmm. And I had I have uh, three children, uh, one of which my middle child is a senior in high school this year. And uh, we had a chance to go on a ta- college tour. And I got to uh, take them back to Ithaca yeah. and uh, relive the glory for 24 hours or so. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful campus and amazing. Where did you grow up? You, we weren't, you weren't from Ithaca, clearly. It's a small town, but where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles. I was uh, born and raised on the west side of Los Angeles and uh, got my start uh, in this business selling hot dogs on the beach. Wow. So Los Angeles to, to Ithaca, New York, that's a long way from home too. My, my oldest son starts university on Tuesday and we're taking him away to check him into residence. I can't imagine the angst your parents must have had checking you into Cornell. 
Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. They didn't. They said, oh, well, you're, you're, you're pretty good. You've got all your stuff arranged. We'll wait till parents' weekend to come. No so that adjustment from uh, that uh, kind of third week in August until they got there in the middle of October was a rather interesting period in my life. Wow, crazy. So they just like kicked you out the door and got you on a plane. They, they, they did. Don't let it hit you on the way out. But you know, <laughs> that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I've, I've been in the franchising world as well for a long time with a number of franchising groups, but none were in the restaurant space. And I've always been enamored with the restaurant industry, but all and the complexity of it too. Like such a really complicated with cash and inventory and employees and turnover. And it's a really and, and so much competition and fickle customers. It's an amazingly complicated industry. All of the above. And uh, it, it we we basically the difference between us and retail is we manufacture on site. That's mm essentially uh, the, the biggest difference, right? You're dealing in the retail world, you're dealing with uh, uh, shrinkage of inventory and SKUs and that kind of thing. But in the, uh, the restaurant world, you're dealing with live manufacturing with all sorts of various uh, raw materials that all uh, have various inputs, uh, i.e. recipes. And uh, there are just challenges day in and day out. But that's one of the things that I felt, fell in love with, right? It's never boring. There is always something interesting going on. And, 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 Secondarily, it's an instant gratification business. It's one of those things that you can make a tweak or a change. You could put a special on for a day, whatever it is, and be able to get instant feedback from your customers. Yeah, you can split test really fast. And your customer Absolutely. your customer return, you're standing there talking to them, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so, a lot of people don't have that advantage. Yeah, so tell, tell us a little bit about, um, about the restaurant business that you're in right now, Flix Entertainment and Brewhouse. Tell us a bit about that so we understand it, and then we'll kind of dive into kind of some of your learnings throughout the years. Sure. So just to, to correct you, Flix, Flix Entertainment is the, the, uh, the manager of the holding company, if you will. The, okay. the concept is Flix Brewhouse. Got right? it. Okay. Just by itself. So um, Flix is uh, the first of its kind and the only still to this day uh, brewery and uh, first-run cinema in the United States. Okay, hmm. so these are really, really complex, large operations. Uh, every single one of our buildings is about forty thousand square feet. Uh, they have anywhere from eight or nine screens to them, showing first-run movie product, and there is full-blown service at every single seat in every single flex. So okay. the experience isn't one where you. Uh, are in the uh, in our pub and you you use that as the restaurant and then you go into a movie theater and you watch the movie and there's separate things that you do. Ours is a combined all-in-one experience. You could use our pub just as a restaurant as well, but when you get to uh, to a Flix, you are sitting down uh, in your seat and uh, you have a server that is uh, going to come and uh, take your order and tell you how we do Flix and uh, and we ha we have a little bit of a twist because dine in cinema isn't uh, new in this country, but what is different is that we have a working microbrewery in every single one of our locations that makes anywhere from uh, uh, eight to 12 uh, Flix beers uh, on tap at any given time. Yeah, I mean, th that takes the complexity level up a notch too. So I'm, I'm originally Canadian, as I said, I went to school in Ottawa. And, and um, so for me, the whole going to a movie and watching a first run movie and actually having food, great food delivered to me was completely new until about eight years ago when I, I started spending half my time down in Phoenix, Arizona. Right. Um, and I was actually kind of dumbfounded that it was, you know, legit. It was great food. And I was sitting there having a really good experience. And, and I was in these super comfortable chairs. I kind of 
think back to what the drive-ins were like when I was growing up and going, they just really sucked. Right. Um, sitting in your car and where we've progressed. So, okay. So what have you learned from, from running Flicks um, and the, the whole breweries that I think the rest of our listeners can pull into their businesses? What do you think you've pulled? So there, there's all sorts of things, right? Because it's such a, a complex operation. Um, and, and there are things related to uh, just the, the dining cinema industry that I've learned. I'll go through a little bit of all of it in just a second, but just to split it into categories, because there's that piece. There's the microbrewing industry, which is different. There's the movie industry, which I knew nothing about. Sure. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, it's a multi-state operation, too. We, we, these aren't things where you have multiples in each city. We've got, uh, uh, we're just opening location number eight in six states. So wow. you have a problem. You're not taking somebody from across town and uh, shipping them over there for the day in, order, in, in terms of management in order to be able to solve that problem. These are uh, uh, pretty, pretty complex operations that uh, require a lot of planning. And yeah. that's the, the, the key to all of it is, is that my life revolves around uh, planning, strategic planning, daily planning, tactical planning, uh, running uh, uh, 15, 16, 17 of these things in my head uh, every single day and trying to make scalable decisions uh, that will work for us uh, today, obviously, because that's what we need to do. You know, in, instant uh, management profitability is obviously important, but then also... Um, having the the uh, foresight to know how the decisions you make today are going to affect you three, four, or five years from now. And that in particular is a, a really big challenge because you've got constantly changing environments, regulations, laws, and technology. Yeah. I think, I think one of the, the biggest things uh, that we have to make decisions is related to technology. And I think that has a lot to do across all industries. And, and I'll, I'll give you a, a pretty good example here. Um, you saw, uh, gosh, I don't even know, what is it, a dozen years ago that uh, airlines started putting in uh, TVs and monitors at the, uh, at the seats. Sure. And then yeah. uh, somebody came along, like Southwest, I believe, was first. Don't quote me on that, though, um, although I just quoted myself. <laughs> um, the, uh, I think Southwest was uh, first to do bring-your-own-device entertainment, right? And, oh, yeah, you're right. Yep, yeah, now right. I can present it, sure. Right. So if you think about that, do you want to go out and do you want to retrofit every single uh, seat that you have if you're an airplane? Or do you want to do something that's scalable, a solution like that, where you can bring your own device and, and have entertainment that way? And so wow. we're faced with those same kinds of issues because we have um, logistical issues and infrastructure issues uh, in terms of you know the technology backbone. It's really, really important that we make the right decision about capital related to how the experience, the user journey for us is going to be impacted mm. uh, today as well as five years from now. Okay. So there's just so many different areas we can talk about any of them. I, and I want to go all of them. So curious on the, on the brewery side, do you actually wholesale any of your beer to bars or pubs outside or are you just serving it at your Flix Brewery location or Flix Roadhouse uh, Brewhouse location? Um, a little bit of both or, or a lot at our location, right? Sure. That's what yep. you're on. But we do have uh, certain markets where, needless to say, beer has, is a regulated industry, right? Yeah. So different rules related to distribution in the different uh, areas that, uh, that we operate in. So in some places, it's pretty simple for us to uh, be able to distribute the beer and have it on tap in various locations. We sell yep. it 
ale only within our own four walls. In other words, we sell it for consumption in-house as well as to go in the format of, of uh, 32 ounce crawler cans. Awesome. Yeah. So that, that's great. Uh, but then uh, outside, uh, you'll find us in uh, some tap rooms uh, in the various cities we are we, we operate in uh, with some other partners that have wanted to have uh, a couple of flicks handles. That's cool. And okay, so you said you're operating 17 locations in how many states? Six or eight states? Uh, no, no. Right now we operate eight. I'm running. I'm running the business model plan for that, though. Got so, it. Okay. So the, the the current we currently exist in uh, number eight is scheduled to open this uh, coming uh, Friday, one week from while we're when we're recording this, um, in El Paso, Texas. Okay. And uh, we already have uh, two others in Texas. Our original one in Round Rock, just north of Austin and uh, one in Little Elm, Texas, north of Dallas. So okay. three in the state of Texas, and then we've got uh, Madison, Wisconsin, Carmel, Indiana, Des Moines, Iowa, um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and am I forgetting one? I don't think so, I think that's it. And then uh, we've got, oh, oh, Chandler, Arizona, where you said you had your diet. All right, I will have to go check that out. I'll be down in Arizona in a week. Yeah. Um, okay, so why, why going into multiple states um, are you, are, is the plan to saturate states like Texas and have like, you know, eight, 10, 20 locations or no. is it- me, you just don't have the population density, um, within us, a, a market for, for dine and cinema for us to be able to do that. I mean, it's nice to be able to own a market, mm. but there, you know, you, you have a, a, a limited, uh, uh, audience size for, for various movies, right? Movies. Sure. That's the other thing that's interesting, just as a side note, is my customer, unlike most people, mine changes every single week. Right? Yeah. That's not to say that it never repeats, but if you think about it, think, think about my past life and just general casual dining. You could look out into the dining room on a Saturday night and you would generally see the same customer over and over and over again. Demographically the same. Yeah, program. yeah. Demographically the same, but you're right. right. Like, yeah, but all of a person, sudden. You- right. The person that's going to come to see it. Uh, chapter two, the horror film next uh, uh, Friday night is not the same person that is coming to see Frozen 2. Wow, crazy. Right. Yeah, so it's we- interesting. I, I went to a concert. I went to two back-to-back concerts in Vancouver, Canada about 10 years ago. And on one night, I went and saw Eric Clapton. And everybody was like, you know, I was the youngest person in the audience. Everybody was like 55 plus. And then the next night I went to Alanis Morissette and I was the oldest person in the audience and everybody was like 28. And I'm like, weird. I'm in the exact same arena with completely different demographics. Yeah, you are. And the concessions that those folks are selling you at that particular concert are completely different. That that mix will change based on those two events. No kidding. So you're having to, do you change up your food then or do you just have to keep it consistent and hope that it works? (laughs) A little bit of both. Um, we change up the food in terms of a limited time offering menu that is generally circulating uh, around movies, right? right? So we'll do an offering. We did a um, uh, an offering for the Lion King, which was a beverage, a punch type beverage. Um, and then we did a, uh, a dessert for that one, right? Okay. But then we'll do um, a pizza for uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or sure. you know, <laughs> of course. Different. Right. All sorts of different things based on what the movie is. So there will be some limited time offerings associated with particular content that was designed to appeal to that, uh, that crowd. But then the, 
the uh, the menu itself is uh, diversified enough to kind of have some offering for everyone so that we can uh, maintain consistently consistency in that area makes sense how yeah. do you how do you navigate all the state regulations you, you kind of touched on that earlier that um, the complexity of that I mean I, I built some companies that were multi-state but I didn't have to work on the legal side you guys are dealing with a ton of legal issues yeah we we are and uh, it is something that we have to monitor pretty carefully um, we do have uh, an in-house uh, senior uh, vice president of real estate construction construction who is a reformed lawyer and uh, he also uh, dabbles in uh, kind of keeping us uh, on pace related to regulation as well. So when he feels like practicing law, he uh, he gets involved in that. Hmm. Are you but it doing, is challenging? Are you doing any acquisitions? Or are these all greenfield? I imagine they're all greenfield, right? Just you have to all, build all greenfield at the moment. So that that's one of the reasons why we've particularly stayed in the the south and the the Midwest. Um, because it, it is cinema dining is a concept that is uh, uh, accessible um, to folks in that area. We can keep our prices reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not going to the the bigger cities on the coast where where the pricing structure is a little bit higher sure. uh, is uh, has been a, a working uh, model for us that that's worked real well. Um, and uh, I think that there's accessibility to location and real estate that is uh, better throughout kind of the area we're operating than some of the places that are totally. uh, overbuilt. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, like you actually, when you rattled off some of the cities and states you're in, you're almost in secondary cities and secondary markets. Yeah. Um, and that was Walmart's strategy. You know, Walmart right. for the first 50 years, I think they were in the tertiary cities. They didn't even go to the secondary markets, let alone primary until 50, 60 years in. Yeah, sure. And for us, um, that gives us uh, the ability to be uh, the, the the big fish in town, if you will, right? It's exciting. It's entertainment. It's maybe something that hadn't come to one of those cities before. Um, our next one uh, that we're going to be opening is uh, going to be in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and uh, we will be the first cinema dining operation to op- open in the entire state of Oklahoma. Well, so. well, I'll tell you, I I I mean, I haven't done the full demographic check or the full research check for you, but I don't think there's any that I know of in Canada, certainly not in Vancouver or the West Coast. Don't come to Vancouver. It's too damn expensive with our property up here. But <laughs> um, but I, we had one that opened about two years ago that turned into an adult-only cinema because of our strange laws. Uh, they serve alcohol. And uh, so they won't, you're not allowed in if you're a kid under 18 because there's alcohol being served, which is just dumb. Right. That was one of the things that we had to work on getting changed in the state of Oklahoma in order for us to be able to pave the way for this upcoming opening. Interesting. So, okay. Tell me about the staffing side of your business um, and what we can learn. You, you're having to staff, I would guess, an awful lot of Gen Y and Gen Z. You know, they're, yeah. they're, um, and turnover. Is, is turnover an issue in your industry in the restaurant space still? It, it is. It'll always be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done some kind of innovative things to, uh, to, to combat that. Um, but before we get there, I'll tell you that, that sometimes uh, the way turnover works in our industry is actually a benefit for flicks because the movie calendar um, releases exactly when people are out of school and at vacation time and that kind of thing. So we have a lot of seasonal workforce that help us out. And that uh, makes uh, this a little bit easier than maybe some of your uh, more traditional food and beverage restaurant uh, kind of employers out there. Um, so that, that's, that's one of the good things is that, that 
we we are we have to measure turnover a little bit differently as well because those seasonal workers um, shouldn't count when they come back to work for us four times in a year, right? At Thanksgiving break, at winter break, uh, spring break, and summertime, right? You can come you can come back to Flix uh, four times a year if you're a student uh, working somewhere else. So okay. uh, there are, but for us. There's a, a core uh, component of our workforce that is full-time and uh, uh, with us all the time also. So it becomes, and it, that's the real turnover piece that we need to, to measure and work on. And so we've done, as I said, some innovative things. And the first thing we did was uh, something that we approached that was uh, we felt was pretty dynamic for the, the, the food and beverage industry specifically. And that is we, we came up with a system called uh, achievement-based compensation. So if you are a uh, an hourly team member, and many places in the, the restaurant industry don't give hourly team member raises at all, particularly on the service side as opposed to the, the, the kitchen and cook side. Um, but if you are with us, you can come to work for us. If you learn a new skill, because we have all, all sorts of advanced learnings that we will offer you, mm-hmm. um, the minute you have uh, certified at that, in that skill, you get more money. I love it. Okay. You're driving your your income as opposed to uh, waiting for an annual review or for us to notice that you need a raise or those kinds of things. Well, what I, and what I love about this, so I was a part of an organization years ago called College Pro Painters, and it was where I really learned how to um, how to actually run a business. And I learned franchising at College Pro Painters. We had 800 franchisees every year who were university and college students. And it was very performant, but they, they had a model where you had to drive the learning yourself. And if you got certain certifications, you could move to the next level. And so two things you did. One is you, you talked about the certification. So not just taking the course, but you're certified right. in it. And then secondly, that you're tying it into their compensation. So how does the certification work for you guys? So for us, um, we would do something like, uh, just as an example, in the kitchen, we would do what's called a station master. Right. Station master badge and achievement is when you've mastered uh, two or more stations. Right. You're initially hired to cook on a station, whether it's a pizza or pantry or something like that. As soon as you move and you uh, go two or more and then you demonstrate proficiency and a a certain amount of solo hours, kind of like uh, trying to become a pilot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Although, although a little bit different, um, you, you at that point in time will have achieved the certification and there is uh, someone to, uh, to validate uh, your work. And at that point in time, you become certified to be able to uh, be a station master and you get a pin and you get a raise. And it's uh, worked really well because there's no income cap at Flicks. You can right. do all sorts of different things, whether it's station master to becoming a kitchen supervisor, to becoming an assistant kitchen manager, to a kitchen manager. And our first kitchen manager to general manager transition just happened where we just promoted somebody to general manager that was one of our kitchen managers. Well, I have a friend here in Vancouver who's, um, Andrew started with a company. I'm going to have to say 25 years ago, he started with a company called cactus club and he was a waiter and he moved from a waiter to a general manager or a shift manager to a general manager to an area manager. And now he is a co-owner uh, one of three owners in the Cactus Club restaurant chain in Vancouver, which is a couple of hundred million dollar business now. Uh, he makes more money than Sinatra and all of his neighbors put together. <laughs> and and he started as a manager and, and it was the same thing. They just found somebody and groomed them and kept growing them. And I love that. I think it's such a smart model to really care about people and not tie compensation to the role, 
but just to also their certification and the growth that they have. Absolutely. And it's worked really well for, for us. Our team members have mm-hmm. totally embraced it. Um, and it's become part of our culture, which is really uh, key because people start talking about ABC. We, we did, that's what we call it, ABC, Achievement Based Compensation. Uh, I like it. People start talking about it on day one. And it's, uh, it just becomes part of the fabric of what we do and in terms of what certifications you've gotten and what, uh, what you've been able to achieve in order to be able to continually move ahead. I like that. So I've, I've got a question. Um, your executive team, your leadership team, did they get trained on some of those frontline roles as well? Like, do they learn how to run the, the pizza section or they sit and sell tickets or bag popcorn? It's a, it's a great question. Um, so some, some yes and some no. Um, we, we put everybody who comes into the organization through uh, some level of uh, team member uh, functional training in the positions in our cinemas yeah. so that we have some type of working understanding of what our folks do. Um, any disconnect between what we do in our, uh, our head office and what happens in the field um, is, is, is it's damaging, really. I mean, yeah. We've got to be to the point where, where our folks uh, who are, are here to support what happens out in the field uh, understand what happens so that they can help do that support to just uh, operate things uh, kind of in a vacuum without understanding how it's impacting field operations. It's kind of a dangerous, dangerous game. And so we make everybody who's going to uh, work through a supporting role in our operation go through uh, actual closing. Even, even folks that we hire, on, if we hire an accounting clerk, uh, we'll send them out not so much to work pizza, but they'll they'll stand in the kitchen and, and watch food coming off the line for a couple hours. But they'll go do closings with sure. with our managers in order to be able to understand, you know, how what is the administrative side of the job? Um, how do we uh, record for uh, for for cash and so you know the other things that we're dealing with in the unit, so that they truly have a good understanding of what goes on. Yeah, I think it's so important that that the that you do those frontline. I remember the the day I came in to start at one eight hundred got junk, and so one of my first days there as a COO was out hauling junk, and I had the uniform on, and I was hauling this old crap. But I get such a massive amount of empathy for the crew and for our customers. And then one day I was standing, and I had to do one of our marketing. We were waving at traffic. We were sign spinning, you know, standing with the mm-hmm. signs and spinning. It. Right. I remember standing there wearing a blue wig and waving at traffic and this buddy of mine, John Murphy, drove by in his Ferrari honking the horn. I'm like, oh my God, what has happened to me that I'm standing here (laughs) spinning signs? But I remembered going, it works actually. Like it really works. When the guy in the Ferrari sees people spinning signs, he's going to remember the brand. And and it became, guerrilla marketing became a huge part of our culture because the leadership team saw that it all worked. You know, we didn't, we didn't remove ourselves from the, from the front line. We hired a uh, director of marketing uh, five years ago or so, mm-hmm. and he was uh, a, a real brand evangelist for Flix. He, he was a, not only was he an experienced guy, but he also uh, really, really loved the, the concept was one of our first uh, customers that we ever served when, when the original Flix opened. Mm-hmm. And when he got here, he, all he could think of was what it is that we could do better because he, he had experienced it from the customer standpoint. So he just wanted to drive sales to the highest possible level as generally marketing people do. But he went in uh, guns blazing and realized that he was driving the business too hard, actually, versus what our team could handle. 
So mm. it was a really important lesson for him as well that, hey, we need to do this in steps so that we can get the team ready to handle that, that, that sure. level of volume that we have. And, you know, good, he, he, he realized that good marketing can kill a bad business. Yeah. Well, good, that, yeah, it, it amplifies the bad business really quickly. Absolutely. Um, so you talked about, about planning as being kind of one of your cores, planning around strategy and planning around locations, planning around scalability. Right. Walk us through some of your methodologies related to planning. And it's good timing because we actually have our COO Alliance event. We run the only network of its kind in the world for second in commands. And our event that is next week, the theme is reverse engineering planning and strategy. So I'm curious as to um, what you use at, at Flex and in prior businesses related to those areas. Well, let's, let's talk short term before we, we talk long term, right? Sure. Because, yeah. because we are a pretty cyclical business in terms of uh, the ebb and flow of volume. Matter of fact, the weekend we're in right now is one of the slowest weekends we have all year. Labor Day weekend sure. is not a weekend for the movies. Yeah. But we have uh, a week from now, we will, Hollywood will release the, uh, a movie that is thought to be the fourth or fifth highest grossing of the year in It Chapter 2. So we need to go from zero to 60 in no time flat and be ready to do that. Yeah. And that is, uh, that's, that's really where the short term challenge comes into play. So uh, if we, um, needless to say, we're also weekend loaded, particularly during the school year. Sure. So if we uh, relax too much on Monday and Tuesday, Sat Friday and Saturday are going to be really, really challenging. Um, so what's, what happens is, is that we go through this, uh, the, the, this routine we developed related to the planning of a week and it doesn't change, right? It, mm-hmm. change, it changes in terms of what we have for content and what we expect for volume, but we have to do that analysis. So we do the analysis of uh, the movie schedule, what's staying, what's going, uh, what we forecast every single screen that we are going to have by show every single day. So uh, if a screen holds 100 people, we're going to forecast that uh, there's going to be uh, 12 in there on a Tuesday afternoon, but then on Saturday afternoon, there's going to be 98. And so we, we have to actually then allocate the resources and the labor and then figure out, obviously, the, the product mix for that particular genre of film and what it's going to look like uh, so that we're prepared to handle that level of business. So we have all sorts of, uh, of tools that we've created related to the planning that goes on week by week in order to be able to be ready for those challenges and that business when, when it comes. Um, so that, that's the short term side of yeah. it. Um, the long-term side of it is uh, the the more um, uh, kind of I don't I don't know quite what the word is, but uh, it's the part that I have to live in my head constantly, right? Because um, you got to think about what are the chess pieces in order to be able to handle a six uh, six state operation in terms of the people side in particular. Yeah. So. Um, long-term, uh, what works for the business, right? I talked a little bit about things that are scalable, particularly in the area of technology, but how are we doing the people development side, right? So about, um, I don't know, a year ago, um, I, uh, I, I did a, uh, a workshop here in Austin and, um, it, it was kind of a, it were one of those things. Uh, types of things where you you work on a, a, a wicked goal kind of thing, yep. a, a huge a huge problem, and, and, and I went in with one particular problem it was a sales challenge related to um, one of our locations, um, and I realized that that was a complete waste of my time, 
right? Because that wasn't what my, my big challenge was going to be for the organization. The big challenge was how do we grow this team and have them ready to uh, be able to perform at the pace that we're going to be opening these units. Yep. So, uh, a, so I, I developed a, uh, a program that we call uh, Next Man Up. Next woman wo up actually is what we called it. Sure. Uh, but uh, we put the, so that way it's a woman or a man, whoever the necessary uh, person that we need is and making sure that they are up for the challenge and they've had the development that they need when we need them. And mm -hmm. that's the key, right? It's really easy for me to go in and say, Hey, uh, Hey, Hey John, uh, you're promoted. Um, but it's not really easy for me to be able to have everybody ready at the right time and right size the organization and not have a bunch of people who are ready to move to the next level, but we don't have the availability to, to, to uh, be able to move them along in their development. You know, if I have eight general managers or assistant general managers that are ready to be general managers, that's great, but I'm not going to have eight units to put them in, in uh, the next six months. So I have to make sure that we have the team ready to go on the right date at the right time and that I'm never caught off, off guard in terms of a, uh, a possible turnover incident that I don't have somebody ready to go to step up to consistently meet the operational challenges of the business. Well, how do you keep those people engaged when you're not quite ready to move them into a general manager role, but you know it's probably coming in nine months? How do you keep them? Do you tell them? Yeah, you, you do. In our particular case, we, we, we developed a, a mentor program, mm. right? So we've got folks that are working with one of our established general managers to be ready. And I, I even told some of my, my guys that when we've put them and paired them in the same unit, uh, your job is to sit in the corner and drink coffee and read the newspaper, Mr. General Manager, because I want uh, your understudy really running this business so that we can ensure that he or she is ready to take the challenge to the next level. And it becomes uh, literally to the point where that general manager is doing nothing but coaching that performance. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how we do it to make sure that we have people ready because we don't actually put them into the situation. They won't be. Yeah, it's tough because you really want to be recruiting and growing people from within, but then you don't want to get them so skilled that they leave and go somewhere else. And then right. there's also that uh, as the company accelerates in growth, you need to hire ahead of that curve. So we do challenges, we do incentives, we do all sorts of things to ensure that, that we lower that turnover. We've, we've been really successful in doing so, right? Uh, that The growth has spoken for itself. Um, we've uh, just in my time here, um, which is six years now. We've gone from uh, one to eight. And, and again, these are big operations. So there's yeah. not like you can pop them up really quick. And we've already got uh, four that are in various stages of construction right now. So they, people see the growth and they know it's coming. And they also realize that these are really involved uh, businesses, right? So running them uh, when you're a four walls general manager and you've got to worry about movies, you've got to worry about team member, 200 team members of location, and you've got to worry about uh, making sure that your beers are brewing properly and uh, the inventory is right and all these other things is uh, it's a big challenge. So um, being able to uh, uh, pass some of those things off to the folks that we need to develop and get them ready to the next level in small kind of bite-sized pieces has been a pretty effective strategy. Okay, how many, just to, to, so we get a scope or a sense of the scope, approximately how many employees do you have at, at you know, each location? Uh, anywhere from 150 to about 190. 
Right. So like if people think that there's only five or seven people running around, they're completely uh, missing it. Like 150 to 190 employees per location. How many would you have roughly on a shift? 30, 50? Uh, yeah, that, that's on an average shift, but you'll have well over 100 working on a oh, uh, Saturday, a, Sunday. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's insane. Like it's just, it's, it's actually really insane to think about how many people and hiring and the like, and these are, no, these are tough, these are tough people to be hiring for. They are, they are. We, and we, we work on uh, what are the competencies associated with that, that we want uh, to, to have in our folks um, and, and really focusing on those six competencies to ensure we have people that are going to be kind of aligned with, with our purpose. Yeah, and, and that becomes uh, half the battle. If you can get the right people, and they're all uh, with the right uh, the right mindset, it really becomes a lot easier. Can you explain something to me that I've never understood? This is sure. is why why are there nights of the week when you've got like a a fifty seat theater? Why are there nights of the week where there's like six people sitting there? I don't get it. Like it's such a big city. How how are you not always full? Yeah, I don't mean just you. I mean like every movie theater in general. It's just like, are there that many other options out there? Right. Well, that that's the, the that's the business model, right? So, and we we allow for that. So we understand that there's going to be super low occupancy times, but then there's going to be uh, super high level occupancy times, and you kind of factor that into the model. Um, why that's the case, I can't really tell you, except to say that obviously people. Um, uh, at least from an American cultural standpoint, are really uh, ingrained with the concept of schedule and mm-hmm. routines. And, and, and even Hollywood has um, uh, released film exactly in that pattern to adjust for that, right? So in other words, they, this is Labor Day weekend. They, they've just given up, right? <laughs> as much as I, I, I'm not, I shouldn't be the one criticizing uh, the, the makers of the uh, the intellectual property and the content, but but I'm going to uh, briefly, and that is to say that that Labor Day it's a three day weekend. Um, it's not viewed in the uh, American population much differently than Memorial Day, right? Start yeah. of summer, end of summer. Yet yeah. Memorial Day, big blockbuster movie release weekend. Uh, Labor Day, nothing. So you ask, sure. why is that? Well, it, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that the disposable income goes to uh, back to school, right? right? Yeah, yeah, makes the, sense. The people go, so they go out and they shop and they do other things, they go out to lunch, and I don't think that there's a lot of, of um, uh, time for movie necessarily. Yeah. But I think if they released content that uh, would get people to, to come, you would be surprised at the amount of people that we'll see. When we have major tentpole releases, we'll, we'll st- still see during the work week, school week, um, a lot of volume even during the day. Okay. And so it's just a uh, a matter of releasing content that resonates with the public. So why why have they not looked at in terms of like supply demand or in terms of uh, you know staying keeping capacity? I remember I don't know when this was. It was like I'm gonna totally date myself right now, but I'm guessing it was like 1981 ish where they introduced in Canada two dollar Tuesdays, mm-hmm. and it was it was two dollars to go to the movie and and because nobody went to the movie on Tuesdays like what the hell right. are you even going to the movie on? But then all of a sudden Tuesdays like you couldn't get a seat at a movie theater they were so busy for years. That's right. Why do we not do that? Why do we not offer to get them into the to the theater like two dollar Tuesdays and four dollar Wednesdays and and know that they're going to buy the food and then keep the prices high on Saturday Sunday Friday. 
We do, but we've got uh, the, those uh, intellectual property owners um, that we are our partners in that ticket price. And they and, won't allow you. Yeah, so they have uh, certain rules that we need to follow, and uh, that's part of the, the partnership here in uh, the United States film distribution business. So we work within those parameters, and uh, it, you know, we built it in, those parameters into our business model. Wow. There's got to be a way around it. I'm such an entrepreneur where I'm like looking for this. I'm looking for the side door that I can sneak into, right? Whether it's like, you know, $10 free food on Tuesdays. And um, so, yeah, so, so, so are we, 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 we all, we always are. And yeah, I guess. If, yeah, I'm not, yeah. If you think about it, movies are, are, are a little bit of an antiquated uh, business model. Yeah. Um, they, haven't, they haven't moved to dynamic pricing, right? You yeah. Would, that uh, when Star Wars releases, the price is going to go up. And when you hit six weeks old, it should go down. So there should be that. Um, if you think about uh, from a marketing standpoint, where do you see film advertising? Well, you see it now online and you see it uh, in uh, on television, right? Movie commercials for movies all the time. Yeah, but yeah. what you don't see is marketing directly to the consumer who's the most likely to see that film. Now, why is that? Because the keeper of the data on who's coming to see, <clears throat> excuse me, who's coming to see that film is the, the exhibitor. So in other words, I know because I have reserved seating, I know mm. who's sitting in uh, row, right. row C, seat 10 at any given time, and I have that person's information. Why are content producing partners, um, the, the movie studios, uh, haven't partnered with us to be able to market there to our guests that they know has a high propensity to go see that film um, and make it more of a partnership? I, I don't particularly understand. I think they'd rather just have blanket coverage um, and put a television commercial on than going out and saying, hey, uh, hey, hey Flex, let us partner with you on this film. Tell us... Uh, uh, who has come to the following 10 titles and when they came and let's go directly to that consumer and let's do a little project and kind of partner with, uh, with us on uh, how to fill your, your seats. Yeah. Interesting. What percentage of your people go to two movies and pay for one? Uh, <laughs> no, nobody because it's an all reserve seat environment. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. You've done that. That's right. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of like the ball game. You can't do that anymore. But I, right. I think that's a great question because all of us <laughs> did that when we were kids and we snuck around and went to multiple movies on an afternoon totally. and that's how it worked. That's how I saw Return of the Jedi. Yep. Two people bought tickets and the rest of us snuck in. We were like three weeks after the movie released. Right. All right. Um, so for you in your role, I mean, you've clearly been been running these big organizations, but every day these are kind of like the biggest thing we've ever done, right? Or we're all still, I've always said, we're all still 16-year-olds trapped in adult bodies. How is Matthew still growing as a leader? What are you working on and growing today? I, I, I learn every single day. You know, I'm, what I'm working on right now is the fact that um, uh, I'm making decisions that affect a way younger workforce than I am, right? Mm. So, so running through my filter of sensibilities doesn't always make the most sense because I'm not the person on the ground that's executing it day in and day out for our guests, and I'm not the team member that is being um, uh, uh, it is the recipient of a lot of the decisions I make. So what I'm working on personally and professionally is trying to get better at uh, more diverse thinking and getting uh, as much uh, input as we can from all levels of the organization across all demographics, across all um, 
age groups and, you know, and everything in order to be able to make really good decisions that, uh, that support the long-term health of the Flix team member and the Flix business and brand uh, to keep the consumer coming back. Great. You're, you've had a CEO role before and a franchisee, I think, before. How, how have those roles differed for you versus being the COO in a company? Um, it, it's really, it, it's very, very different, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I work for a uh, gentleman that is all entrepreneur. <laughs> and when I say all entrepreneur, uh, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in more of a uh, it, it's funny way because he thinks about things uh, differently than I do. Right? Yep. He he um, uh, doesn't understand why we can't do certain things, and I think probably the other is true as well. He has certain biases towards certain things because sure. it's what we did when the concept was incubated. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's always the right thing to do, but he doesn't necessarily understand why we don't still do it that way. Yep. Well, it's not, my my answer is always, it's not as scalable. So I've learned a lot about how to, to, to sit in, in both seats. Um, I love my, my COO role though, um, because I work with somebody who again is an entrepreneur. So he challenges my thinking. Right. And at the same time, um, I have the freedom, the knowledge, the history, the training to be able to really drive uh, the culture in this organization to uh, a level that it will make it, I, I think, uh, very, very successful for, for the uh, foreseeable future. Oh, for sure. All right, Matthew, if you were to go back to your 22 year old self graduating Cornell and you wanted to give yourself some business advice or leadership advice, advice that you know to be true now, but you wish you'd known earlier, what do you think it would be? Oh, that's super simple. Number one, you don't know everything. Hmm. You absolutely don't know everything and you are going to continue to learn and grow and develop forever. Learning uh, never stops, but you lose sight of the fact that you uh, you think it does when you're 22 because <laughs> you're out of school. So um, try and learn as much as I can continue to learn and and uh, to be able to use that knowledge to make me uh, richer um, in, in my intellect to make uh, really good decisions. Um, and, and then secondly... Um, work on uh, how to uh, how, how to read and how to write. And I know that sounds um, uh, uh, kind of uh, remedial, but I- I'll tell you um, the ability to communicate with all sorts of different people. Mm. Um, and that means uh, different languages, um, different backgrounds. Um, uh, the words you choose so that you're not speaking over someone or over someone's head uh, and and how you write, because I write a a weekly column for our our, our entire company, um, is really, really important. And you shouldn't uh, uh, lose sight of how it is that you're representing yourself and your brand and uh, to your your folks um, because they, they take their cues from me. That's cool. Matthew Beiser, the COO for Flix Brewhouse. Thank you very much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. You are very welcome. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.